All right. Well, welcome back to our evening service. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes and for chapter six. Ecclesiastes chapter six. I trust that you had a good, uh, afternoon. I went home, had some leftover pizza and then fell asleep on the couch. <laughs> and, uh, it's one of those hard sleeps where you, you fall asleep and then you wake up and you realize that you, I've only slept like five minutes and then you go back to sleep and then you wake up and you've only slept another 10 minutes and kind of back and forth like that. But, um, it was, uh, it's a good afternoon. So, um, just to, to relax, but in Ecclesiastes chapter six, we're going to be down right around, um, <clears throat> verse, uh, eight through 12. We're going to try to pick up the rest of this chapter. And we had left off uh, with uh, verse 7 talking about the whole labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. And we had talked about the contentment that was there, the contentment uh, uh, that uh, is uh, necessary in our lives and how mankind is not content and the vanity that is filled therein. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, one of the, a, a very important issue, um, and it really leads into the remainder of this, this passage. And it, uh, uh, it starts to open up a lot more of, uh, Solomon's wisdom that the Lord gave him and to see very clearly how we as human beings ought to operate. Now we know obviously in chapter 12, the, the conclusion of the matter, as he says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And kind of keeping that as the mindset of what we're eventually working towards in this passage, uh, we're going to see here that there's an important subject that we as Christians, as believers, need to understand. And uh, we'll get to that. But let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. We'll get started uh, this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we are very thankful to be here. And Lord, uh, I just want to thank you and praise you for a wonderful morning that we've had to rejoice in you and uh, rejoice in the salvation and the resurrection that we have in you. I pray, Lord, that we would just keep those things in mind. And uh, as we study this, Lord, that we would just have this desire to be obedient and yielded unto you. That, Lord, we would seek to do your will. And I pray, Lord, that tonight we would do that by listening and being ready to receive. Again, I thank you for all that you've done for us, and I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would continue to meet with us this evening. You'd speak through me, Lord, that this time would be honoring unto you. And this I ask and pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead and take a look here at uh, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. <clears throat> And uh, just to kind of go back here a little bit to verse 7, it says, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. And we talked about that insatiable desire that mankind has. You know, mankind gets a little bit of something, and they want more of it. It's kind of the addictive personalities that we all seem to have. Some people say, well, I have a personality that's more addictive than others. Well, eh, I dare say that it just all it takes is the right thing. Uh, people can get addicted to whatever it may be, uh, in this life and they just continue to, to want to fill that and that appetite is, is never, never satisfied as we talked about last week. But in verse eight, here he continues and he says, for what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? And he begins to ask this question, and, and throughout this, as, I, as I've often stated, these questions are questions that God knows the answer to, and Solomon also knows these answers, and the idea is for us to be provoked to thought. You, you, you go over there and you see how the Lord talks about provocation. He talks about provoking unto anger, and then he also talks about provoking unto good works, and provoking unto love. As as a believer, when we go through and read scripture and we read these questions, they should provoke a response. We shouldn't just casually read through scripture and just kind of uh, think of it as a rhetorical question. We should kind of ask ourselves, what is the answer to that? What is the answer to these things? And when we look at this and we have to ask the question, what is it that the wise has more than the fool? Uh, we, we, we look at it in, in comparison to the things of this earth, there's not much. 
Do they have more life? Well, not necessarily. Do they have a better life? Well, again, as we've talked about, you know, not necessarily in certain situations. And here he's talking about the, the, the wise more than the fool. And then he talks about himself as a fool. He talks about the foolish nature of mankind and the vanity and things that are filled therein. But what the wisdom that this wise person has is that they have that relationship with God. And this becomes important as we kind of move into the rest of this. And he asks that question, for what hath the wise more than the fool? It is that relationship with the Lord. The fool, the fool does not have that kind of a relationship. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool acts that way. The fool despises wisdom. The fool despises instruction. The fool is the one that refuses to listen. The fool is the one that wants nothing to do with those things of God. Now, somebody that is wise, somebody that has uh, given themselves to the the, the things of the of, of of God, not the things of the world, a person that has sat there and thought about all of this, that's what he has more of. He has more of that relationship. He has more of that connection. And again, remember, this is what it's pressing towards in the last part of this of, of this book. You know, what out the fool more than the wise? I mean, again. We, we begin to realize what that is, and that is that relationship with God. And he asks in this next question here, in, in, in verse 8, What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? There they are, satisfied with what they have. They're content with whatever it may be. They, they, they're, they're not desirous of anything. They're simply sufficient to have food and raiment. And they just kind of, that's it. That's all they need in this life. Whereas the rich, they sit there and they just attempt to fill themselves with all of these things. And as we see, is never, never filled. Even though they have long life, even though they have all of these things that, that, that are out there. If somebody does not know how to walk in this life before the living, that is the witness that they have. What is their life? It is, it is vain. It is, it is just simply vanity. And as he kind of goes into this, uh, the, the, this, uh, um, questioning, this, this thought provoking, uh, form of questioning, he comes up with this situation of something that is better. And he goes into the next verse in verse nine. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the, of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Well, what is that vanity and vexation? It's the wandering of desire. It's the wandering of desire. Desiring to have what we can't have. Desiring to have what maybe the Lord has said, no, you don't get to have that. That's not for you. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that run around and they, they, they try to, to, to claim these promises. And they try to claim these promises saying, well, God has given this to me and all I have to do is go claim it and it's mine. <laughs> nah, you got to be careful with that, all right? <clears throat> there are promises that are given to us, but we got to be very careful when we start walking around demanding things. That's not the way that our relationship with God works, okay? We don't get to go around demanding of God that he does something for us as if he is our servant, as if he is our handmaid, as if he is our vending machine. That's not how this how how life works. And here he is, he, he poses this, this betterment, if you will. Uh, what is better? Well, what is better is being content. And he says right there, he says, better, better is the sight of the eyes. What you see before you should be sufficient. What is in front of us should be fine. I mean, sometimes our eyes get a little bit bigger than, than than our appetite is, right? Sometimes we sit down and we think that, uh, you know, we can eat more than we can. And we realize we can't do that. Uh, um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, recently I had with this, uh, with this COVID stuff is, man, I just did not feel like eating. It was just a matter of I just didn't want to eat. I, I mean, I knew my stomach needed food. My stomach is sitting there growling. It was just, but I just had this desire of no, 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 I just don't want to eat. But I knew I had to. So I, I had small little things 
just to kind of kind of keep, obviously keep my my body going because it needs food to operate, it needs something in the in the tank. <clears throat> but many times we get into this gluttonous mentality, and gluttony is 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 a horrible sin. Gluttony gets into this uh, uh, horrible sin of not only does it involve food, but it involves anything that the Lord gives to us. Where we just desire more and more and more and more and more of it to heap it upon ourselves. And we've talked about that. We've talked about the the, the rich man that was uh, his barns were filled and he says, I will build bigger barns. And he's just amassing more and more to his name. And, and obviously... Uh, you know, as the Lord's talking about that, uh, that, uh, instance, he says he, to, to that man, how fool I, tonight thy soul will be required of thee. And we see that, that regardless of how he had filled himself and filled his barns in a gluttonous manner, he had gone beyond what he was supposed to have. He should have done something with it. But what we find here in this, in this passage, is we should be sufficient with what we can see now. People are always planning and scheming, trying to get more of something somehow, some way. They're always trying to do that. I mean, you just take a look at, at how criminals operate. That's how criminals operate. They want more of it, right? They're not, they're not content with what they have. They want more and they want more and they want more and they want more and they want more. But what we find here in this passage is he says it's better to just see what we can see and, and just just be content with that. Just be content with that. I'll tell you this is this is a a, a verse that I, I dare say is not often preached, and in seminaries and in institutes and in Bible colleges. Because when you think about it, look, I, I, I've heard them all. All right, I've heard them all. Where these individuals, they'll go out there and they will say, well, you know, you have attained and you are now one of the the top echelon if you reach that 200 number. Whoever made up that 200 number, by the way? Where did that come from? Where did that originate? But 200 is kind of like this magic number that somebody just poses out there and says, you know, if you can get a congregation of more than 200, you have now, you're, you know, you're now tar, top of the, the class. You're, you're, you're one of the elite that is out there. And if you, if you have a thousand, you know, you're, you're, you're one of those top one percenters that's a, an overachiever and things like that. And I'll tell you, a lot of pastors get, get roped into that. They get roped into the mindset of, well, well, I need to grow the church. What has to happen is, is the people have to grow. They have to be healthy. You can have a church of a thousand people, and if they're all infant babes in Jesus Christ and they don't know anything, it, 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 it's trying to manage uh, basically a Christian nursery. You're doing a lot of diaper changing and you're doing a lot of nose wiping. That's just kind of what it is. And there's a lot of creamy, uh, 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 you know, screaming and crying and, and, and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and all sorts of stuff. And, and he hit me and he looked at me funny and he poked me and, you know, he's not touching me and uh, blah, 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 and things of that nature. But what we need is we need, we, we, we need mature Christians. And as I've said before, again, you know, the Lord is the one that adds to the church daily that we see over there in the book of Acts. But again, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and don't do anything. No, we should be doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing, which is uh, going out and being a witness, going out and living before or, or walking before the living in a certain way and, and, and behaving ourselves in a certain manner. But sometimes these pastors, they get so fixated on the numbers and, and, you know, if, if they drop below on one Sunday, it's just like, it's a devastating blow to them. But they're failing to realize what God's doing. They're failing to look at what they have in front of them. They're wanting to fill pews and fill seats. But are they actually having those lives filled with the Holy Spirit? Are they having those lives filled with the Word of God? Are they having those lives of those individuals that are there? And are they growing? 
And we see time and time again, we see individuals that, that just simply are not content. And these pastors will go and they will sit in a labor in a place for years and years and years and years. And then they never see hardly anything more than like 25 people. And they think that they're a failure because that's what the world tells them. But those 25 people have grown significantly in the, in the Lord. And they're healthy Christians. And they're mature And they're making right decisions. And they're going out there and they're witnessing. And they're telling people about Jesus Christ. And they've got their own little mission fields. And maybe some of the young people are going out and serving the Lord. And deciding that they're going to to, to be missionaries and pastors and Sunday school teachers. And continuing on. And they fail to see that. Because they're wanting to see more and more and more and more and more. They're wanting to grow, but they, they, they don't see what's in front of them that the Lord has put in front of them at that point in time to minister to. They see those fictitious numbers that they want to achieve. And they lose sight. They lose sight. Go over to the book of First John. First John chapter 2. <clears throat> First John chapter 2. <clears throat> and... and, and and in verse uh, 15, in First John chapter 2, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, it makes it very clear here. We've got to be careful about what it is we're lusting after, what we want, what, we, what we're desiring. And if our desire is wandering into other areas that we ought not be in, then we have a problem. We have a problem. But what we find here very clearly is that we find that this desire of the things of the world is not one that is from the Father. It's not of God. And he says here in verse 16, for all that is in the world, and he he kind of sums it down to these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. You realize that pretty much every sin kind of boils down to like one of those three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I mean, there's a lot of sins that they can be classified under pride. There's a lot. And there's a lot of crossover between these three. Because somebody that is sitting there saying, I want that, I deserve that, and they're lusting after it because they see it, and then they go and they commit a lust of the flesh by going in there and trying to obtain it on their own. They're pride-filled in saying that they deserve it, and even though God hasn't given it to them, they think it's theirs, and they take it by force. See how quickly that just that whole mind and that process just just degenerates. And here John is saying, this is, this is what the world is, is feeding. This is what the world wants. This is what the world is pushing after. This is what the love of the world is all about. Can you fulfill the lust of your flesh? Can you fulfill the lust of your eyes? And can you fulfill that pride? I dare say we can never fill those things. I mean, very clearly he said that the appetite is not filled over there in verse 7 in Ecclesiastes 6. So we again see that there's a very, very clear understanding that these things are desires that we ought not have. This morning we read a, 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 over there about a desire that the psalmist had, and his desire was to have one day in the house of the Lord. It was, it was to be a, a, a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in tw- tents of wickedness. These were the things that the, that the psalmist was content with. These are the things that the psalmist was saying, this is the better part of life. This is what I really, truly want. And this is where God is saying, setting our affections on things above. Because again, those affections have an effect in our life. What we look at and what affects us produces a specific change or a specific result, that effect, into our life. And if we allow the things of this world to affect us, it will produce a commensuratory, uh, uh, you know, effect in our life where we will do the things to obtain whatever it is we want. We, we will become a person that is filled with an improper desire. 
But yet if we are the ones that sit there and we are desiring the things of the Lord, we are desiring that wisdom from him, and we know how to walk in this life the way that we're supposed to, even though we don't have everything that the world has, then we as Christians, we can be content with this. Our Our desire should have a singularity to it. And that is Jesus Christ. We should desire him. If we're desiring Jesus Christ, we are desiring the word of God. If we're desiring the word of God, we're desiring the Holy Spirit to work in our life. If we're desiring the Holy Spirit to work in our life, then we're desiring to do the will of the Father. This is the mindset that we as Christians have to have. This is the mindset that we as believers have to begin to truly understand. And, and, and it's very clear over there where he says in, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There's something that abides forever. Doing those things of the Lord is what abides, is what remains. Now here he is talking about vanity throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And he gets to the very last part and he says, fear God and keep his commandments. That lasts. That endures forever. That abides forever. Why? Because it's in him. And it's done in him for him, for his glory, for his honor, for his praise. The things that we do in this life are just for a moment, right? I mean, the world constantly talks about bands that were out there or singers that were one-hit wonders. You know, they may have had one song that got, you know, up there into the top 40 on the charts or something of that nature. And 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 we can sit back and nostalgically think about it and go, oh, yeah, I remember that song. And you, you know, realize that that was the only song that you know of them. And then you listen to their other stuff and it's like, oh, it's trash. <laughs> it's horrible. They just happen to have one song. One song. And you know what? They don't abide forever. They don't continue on. Again, you see all of these people dragging back these these old bands and stuff like that of the you know the, the these worldly singers, and some of them, some of them, you you look at and you're like, shouldn't shouldn't you like be you know in a, in a retirement center by now? <laughs> You just look at them and you go, how old are you? And you're still doing that. And their bodies sometimes are just absolutely abused because of the drug abuse and the alcoholism. And they're just destroyed. They're just destroyed in this life. And here we are as Christians looking at what needs to abide forever. And it's the will of God. This is why knowing what the will of God is, is so important. Because it is what will abide. Very clearly, we need to understand that concept. Let's go back over there to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And as he continues to talk about this in verse 10, here here comes the real issue. Here comes the real issue that ties into what we just saw there in verse 8. And also in verse uh, verse 9. We're again being satisfied with what we have in front of us. Being satisfied with the Lord, with the Lord has given us. And he says here in verse 10, that which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Now, he, he's already talked about this in a couple of different passages. If you go over to chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, take a look at verse 9. He said something very similar to this. He says, the thing that it hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. He basically says there is absolutely nothing new that is under the sun. All the wickedness that we see is the same wickedness that has been going around for a long time. It's been going around for a long time. Doesn't Jesus Christ say, as in the days of Noah? And in the days of Noah, it was it was awful. It was horrible. The thoughts and the imaginations were evil continually. The whole earth was filled with violence. I mean, that's the way we are now. I was just reading an article the other day that was talked about how how it's so bad that when uh, these uh, 
these congressmen and these senators on both sides of the aisles, they come together to, to, to try to vote, and they're getting death threats. They're getting death threats. They're elected representatives that are getting death threats. When did that become commonplace? When did that become something that was a standard? And I'm sure we could probably go back and we could point to one side or another. But, but the fact is, is it's just awful. It's disgusting. You're not going to vote the way I want you to, so I'm going to do something to you to harm you and your family? That's no, absolutely not. That's, that, 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 that's, that's just depraved. And here we are, we see this, and he says, look, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And in the same fashion, go over to the book, uh, to chapter three. Chapter three, and in verse 15, something similar. Again, he says, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be, uh, hath already been, and God hath required that which is past. And we talked about this. We've talked about what is going to be required. Talking about the judgment that is to come, that he talks about in the very last part of this book. In, in, in chapter 12, where he says every secret thing is going to be brought to judgment. You know, the Bible talks about our idle words being brought into account. The things that we do for the Lord, whether they be good or whether they be bad. I mean, all of these things that we see very clearly, we, there's a judgment that is is coming. There's a judgment that is everyone's going to have to face. And here he's saying there's nothing new under the sun. And as part of this nothing new under the sun, that which has already been is now. And he says there's a judgment. There's a judgment that will happen uh, upon death. There's a judgment that is going to occur at the great white throne judgment. There's a judgment that takes place. And here in the similar fashion, again, he's saying it in, in verse 10 of chapter 6. He says, that which, hath, has, uh, that which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is, a, that, it is a, that it is man. You know what the biggest problem with earth is? Man. <laughs> Human beings. This is why humanism is such a, just an absolute total farce. To sit there and say that mankind is going to achieve some status of greater good and we're going to all live in utopian society and everything of that nature. I mean, not even Hollywood believes that. I mean, how many movies do they put out there where there's some sort of utopian society and the next thing you know is it all falls apart because somebody doesn't like being under somebody's rule? That's usually the way it happens. Because mankind doesn't like to be under anybody's rule. Mankind doesn't like to be under uh, somebody's laws, being told what to do. Why? Because we're rebellious little snots. That's why. <laughs> we sit there and we, we rebel against everything. This is why he says, fear God and keep his commandments. He's saying, look, the stuff that is named already, all the stuff that is vanity, the main issue is that it is man that is a want, has, a, has a wanton desire that cannot be satiated. This is the problem that we have. This is the problem that we have. And, he, and here's the reason why this is an issue. In verse 10, he asks this question. He says, neither may, he, or not that I asked this question, but makes this statement. He says, neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. You want to know what one of the biggest problems that you are going to face in your life is going to be? Is when you decide to contend with God. You want to talk about vain? No, no, look, you know, I grew up, uh, uh, you know, being taught and being told and, and, and eventually being trained that, you know, you need to keep in mind that there's always going to be somebody that is bigger, faster, stronger than you, okay? And you've got to know how to pick your fights. You got to know when to fight and you got to know when to flee. You know, uh, uh, again, you know, no man is going to, you know, defend himself against, uh, you know, an army of 10,000 people. We see some things in scripture. But one guy, he just isn't going to last. Go ask Uriah. He didn't make it. He got left alone in the heat of the battle. And while he may have been a valiant man and took out uh, quite a few people, uh, he still died. There's, you know, David's mighty men. They're valiant men and they, you know, they wrought some good, great victories. But you know what? Each one of them is still dead today. 
You know, eventually at some point in time, even David, you know, they were telling him, you need to stay home because you're more of a liability on the battlefield than you are uh, than a help. We can't have the king dying on the battlefield. And they wanted him to stay home because he almost died at one point. And here, here, here we are. We need to understand this concept that, you know, if some guy comes in and, and, and you just saw him out in the back parking lot bench pressing Volkswagens and then he comes in and he decides he wants to pick a fight with you. You're, you're probably either going to say, I need some more people or, you know what? I think I'm just going to become a peacemaker and I'm just going to go. <laughs> I'm just going to leave. And again, sometimes we don't have that choice. And we always talk about how strong the devil is. And trying to pick a fight with the devil is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard in my entire life. You know, these guys run around saying they're going to grab the devil by the tail. No, you're not. You're going to lose an arm is what's going to happen. You're, you're, you're not going to walk away from that. I mean, take a, just, just ask Peter, as we talked about this morning. Desired to sift him as weed. A very violent process, by the way. And, and, and here people are, they're talking about taking on devils and taking on the devil himself, Satan, and talking about how they're going to defeat him. You're not going to defeat him. Michael the archangel wrestled with him. And Michael the archangel is one tough dude. Right? I'm not trying to say that to be sacrilegious or anything of that nature, but he's an archangel and he's very, 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 very powerful. He is the prince of Israel, is what he is described as. And there he is, he's fighting. Go read Daniel chapter 10. That's one of the most bizarre chapters that you've ever read. There, there's Daniel and he hasn't had an answer or prayer for, for about three weeks, 21 days. And here comes this angel saying, hey, I was delayed giving you an answer. I was delayed by the prince of uh, of, uh, of uh, Persia, and he's ta- he's not talking about a physical prince. He's talking about a principality, an evil spirit that was running the Medo-Persian Empire, that was influencing it. And then he said, "There's another one coming, the prince of Grecia," talking about another evil one. And 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 this this angel left the fight to Michael the archangel, and they were still fighting. Fighting for 21 days? Good grief. You want to talk about a battle? Aren't you glad you don't get to see the spirit world? <laughs> we'd, be, we, we, we'd be completely despondent if we were done with that. I mean, and here we are thinking about this, and, and let's just get down to the point of it. Are we going to actually contend with God? Go over to the book of Job. There's a few passages in Job that, that, that I think we need to take a look at when it comes to this. You know, obviously Job is not, he, he's not going to do this. Job chapter 9, Job chapter 9, and in verse 1 it says, And then Job answered and said, I know that this is of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. How are you going to answer God? You going to try to play you're smarter than God? I mean, we can't even play we're smarter than a fifth grader. (laughs) I mean, again, how are we going to contend with him? Do we think we're stronger than him? We were talking about this, you know, the Friday night fellowship. You know, go over there and, and read what he describes Leviathan as. And he's asking Job, you going to take that thing on? You think you can take it? You can't. And here's, here, here's, here's Job saying, how am I going to contend with him? How, how am I going to, how am I going to fight in such a way? Go over to, to, to chapter 33 of Job. Chapter 33. And and here's Elihu kind of reproving Job at this point in time. And he says uh, um, in verse 12, he says, Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. You know, Job was kind of demanding an answer. 
He didn't curse God. Job was getting a little too big for his britches. And what we find here is Elihu comes along, the young guy, and he sees this whole debate going back and forth between him and the three other friends. And he's he's been quiet the whole time. He's been respectful. And now he's just to a point of where I just, he just doesn't care. He's like, I'm just not going to be quiet with this. Because you're all wrong. And he specifically directs his, 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 his questioning and his, his answers to Job here. And he's saying, look, you're not just in this, man. You are not greater than God. You're not greater than God. In verse 13, he says, why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Or, uh, so we think about this. Does God have to come and give you an account and tell you exactly what he's doing? Who in their right mind would demand that? Obviously a fool would. A wise man wouldn't. And here's Elihu saying, look, you think that, that, that God's going to come and give you an answer for what you're demanding? He's like, who do you think you are, Job? You, you, you've got a problem. You're striving with God in this. You're striving with God. And to, and Job was. Job had some issues. Because obviously Job repents at the end of it. Now again, there was still how God viewed Job, and there was still how he viewed Job's three friends. And God would not hear Job's three friends, but he would hear Job. But Job's bondage in his health and what was going on wouldn't be relieved until he did pray for his three friends. The miserable comforters. But here we are, we see, see, see this striving that takes place. And this is exactly what Solomon's talking about. And he says, you know what, one of the greatest issues that we have and one of the most vain things that we can ever begin to think of is to strive with God. Why don't we just keep his commandments instead? You know, the Bible says that his commandments are not grievous. They're not going to bring us hardship and heartache. Sin brings those things. But what we we begin to see here is we strive against God in in these things in a uh, 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 day-to-day, if you will, fight that it takes place. And he says, look, you know, we want to talk about what the real issue is. I'm naming it already. It's mankind. And we sit there and we try to strive with someone that is mightier than us. We try to strive with God. We try to strive with God. Go back over there and we get into this, into this passage into verse, uh, verse 11 over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And here he is, he's asking, you know, will, will, will man contend with God? Will he prevail against him to keep the, to keep his life the way he's supposed to? I, I mean, and again, even if, even if we died and we decided that we were going to live for ourselves and we, we, we go through all of this, in the end, what profit do we have? We just fought against God. We just fought against God to get all of those things in this life. Where's the profit in that? Where's the profit in that? You realize there's going to be a lot of Christians that show up at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. They're saved, born again, children of God. They have a home in heaven. They have forgiveness of sins. But they've, they, they strove against God their entire life, not willing to do what God asks them to do in the very simplest forms. Simple obedience is all he's asked. Simple obedience. And they strove the whole entire time in their Christian life, and they show up and they say, well, look at all these things, like Paul says. Look at all of what I've accomplished. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. I'm, you know, I've got all of this long list of these things that, 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 that I've accomplished in my life, and who I am, and, and what I've done. It doesn't this mean anything. And God's going to say, it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing. As a matter of fact, I count it lost because watch what happens when I put fire to it. It reveals what sort it is. And while it may look like it's nice and beautiful, it will burn just like the rest of the works of the world. And maybe, maybe somewhere in there is a gem 
is a little nugget of gold, a little piece of silver that has been refined by that fire. And that may be it. But the rest, there was no profit. There was no profit. And it's because they're striving. They won't do what God asks them to do. Where's the profit in that? In verse 11 here, he says, look, you know, here's the vanity. In verse 11, he says, seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? He says, look, we've got all of this stuff that's out there in this world. We've got all of these things exist. We've got vanity that we're finding in every single area of this life. And he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Take a look at the world and we see that it's vain. We take a look at the profit that the world thinks that they have and it's vain. We take a look at long life and if it's not lived for the Lord, don't see good and do good during that time. It's vain and we don't do live for the Lord. It's vain. All of these things he's showing are vain, 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 vain. He says, and this world just increases in vanity. Over and over and over and over and over again. He says, is man any better? Is man any better? We got long life, we got wealth, we got riches, we've got everything that we could ever possibly want. We've got this, you know, ambition of desire, and we're trying to accomplish all of these things. He says, is man any better? If man is the problem, is man any better if they just continue to increase the vanity? I mean, again, here we, this isn't a rhetorical question. He's asking that. What is man the better? If we sit there and we, we, we decide in this life that we're going to try to build up something that is going to just essentially be nothing and burn, and it's vain, and we try to accumulate all of the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the, the, the pride of life, we try to accumulate all of that, the things of the world, and we love the world, and we realize that it's not the love of God that's being demonstrated, and it just goes poof in an instant. where's the better part of that? Where's the better aspect of it? He says, you know what's better? It's better just to be content than to sit there and just let your desire wander to whatever you want it to. Look, I remember that as a kid. Sitting there... Uh, you know, you know, here, here, here comes uh, Christmas time or your birthday or something like that, and you start thinking about, ooh, what gifts am I going to get? And you start getting excited about it, and you get excited about the day, and you're sitting there thinking about all the stuff you're going to get. You know what happens when you hit 48 years old? You probably don't have a lot of that stuff anymore that you were wanting to long for. Doesn't exist, right? It's not there. It's broken. It's fallen apart. You sold it because it went to somebody else's collection and they paid a thousand dollars for whatever it was. And then you turn around and spent that thousand dollars to pay bills. <laughs> you want to talk about vanity? Why is it that you just, you continue to pay these bills, but it just doesn't seem like you get it for any further ahead? I mean, these bills, they come every single month. Why don't they stop? <laughs> they just come, right? And you're paying these bills, and you're paying these bills, and you're paying these bills, and you're paying these bills. And you're like, is this all life is? The vanity of paying bills. <laughs> what better are we, right? Yeah, we try to get investments. We try to plan for the future and having retirement. And there's, again, there's nothing wrong with those things. But again, what we have to do is we have to put it in the right perspective. That's not our God. That's not what we lust for. That's not what we desire. That's not what we want in this life. Because again, we get all of that and then we turn it over to someone else. And they do something with it. We were just talking about that in between services. Uh, a question was asked of me. Uh, how many, you know, what is the un, uh, the unclaimed percentage of gift cards in the United States of America. 51%. Fifth, over $15 billion in gift cards are not claimed 
each year. And when we think about that for just a moment, can you imagine that and thinking about there's $15 billion sitting on the table? How many of us would say, I will take your wayward gift cards? (laughs) I'll take them. Just drop them off here. We'll find a good home for them. (laughs) We'll figure out something to do with them. That's waste. You know, Bible does not talk very fondly of a waster, by the way. $15 billion, 51% of gift cards are not used. That's a horrible thing to think about. But yet here, here it is. You know what it is? It's all vain. That's just, that's just profit in the pocket. That's just profit in the pocket of the people or, or, you know, or not of the people of, of the companies. And it's just, it's just amazing to sit there and think about how much is left out there. How much is left unclaimed? How much money is left out there? And we think about all of that. But again, where's the betterment? Where's the betterment? Wherein do we have something that's better? You know, man, man just simply increases vanity in every area of his life. And if we continue to increase this, you know, what, what have we accomplished that has bettered us? Nothing. Again, I, I, you go back to math. math. Math has got an amazing truth to it. What is one times zero? Zero. What is two times zero? Zero. A hundred times zero? Zero. Thousand times zero? Zero. And guess what? It's just zero. It's always going to be zero. Anything times zero is always zero. It's going to be a big fat nothing. And I dare say that that's kind of the way it is in this life. We think we've got a thousand of something, and then we times it by zero, and we've got nothing. We've got air. (laughs) We've got air. There's no betterment. There's no betterment. Take a look here at verse 12. And again, as I pointed out, this is a key verse in this this chapter. As we wrap this up, he says, again, these questions. And they're not rhetorical questions. They're questions that we need to ask. They're questions that have an answer. And as we go through this, we find the answer. In verse 12, he says, For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? Who knoweth that? All the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? You know, there's an answer to that. It's God. It, 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 it's the Lord. I mean, this is meant to provoke thought. This is what, what Solomon's doing as, as he's asking this question to get us to think about this and say, look, let's just get down to it. Do you really honestly think you know what's best for your life? We like to think that we do. We like to think that we do. But we don't. How many times have we thought something was good for us and we thought it was the right thing and then we went and we got it and it was absolutely the worst thing in the world that we could have ever done? I mean, it just, it happens that way. You know, sometimes people go out there and they think, oh man, I'm going to go out there and, 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 and buy a car or do something, uh, you know, great like that. And I'll, t- I'll tell you this, you know what happens? There was a, used to be a saying a long time ago, and it's obviously changed somewhat because they're, they're, they're they have improved. They said, you know what the greatest accessory to an Audi is back in the eighties? Another Audi. Because one of them will always be in the shop. And it was, it was, it was the running joke. It was the running joke that if you bought an Audi, it should be a two for one deal. You should go and spend, you know, twice the amount of money so that you at least had a car. And people would buy these cars thinking that they got something great and something grand and they found out that they were not. Do you know how, I mean, you just go and take a look at the used car market for supercars. These people go out there and they get this money and they think, oh man, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get a Ferrari. Ah, Having a Ferrari would be a grand thing until you have to pay for the maintenance. 
Do you know how much maintenance is on a V12 Ferrari? Just, I mean, okay, you know what? Maintenance on a Honda Civic <laughs> sometimes can be exorbitant. Just imagine that times three. Now, now you need to add in this other factor called the Italian factor. The Italian factor multiplies everything by ten. <laughs> whether you've got a Bugatti, whether you've got Maserati, whether you've got Ferrari, Lamborghini, it doesn't matter. You take any one of the Italian manufacturers and you start throwing that, you know, Italian behind it. And even though it is, it, it, it may be the best quality in the world, it's still handmade and they still have to hand make the parts. An oil change on a Ferrari. The, the, the joke is that the oil change on the Ferrari is not $10,000. It's only $1,000. And somewhere along the way, you found $9,000 worth of repairs that need to be made. <laughs> this is why all of a sudden, what do you find? A lot of Ferraris that don't have a lot of miles. Because somebody goes, you want me to pay how much? How many of us have $10,000 just lying around for, for, to, for a Ferrari? People are like, you know, they, they're given these high-end cars and you know what? They sell them. Why? Because they don't want them. Because they're expensive to fix and they're a lot of money. It's vain. We think that that's what we want. We think that's what we need in this life. And God asks this question. Who knows what is good for man in this life? Now, here we are. We live in this vain life. All the days of this vain life that we spend as a shadow. I mean, it comes and it goes. And as the sun, you know, rises and as the sun sets, so is our life. It just disappears. And the end result is, what good have we done? What, where is Where is the good in it? But it can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in him. So when we ask this question, it's not a rhetorical question. It's who knoweth what is good for man in this life, and that's the Lord. That's the Lord. Keep your place there and go over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Remember, the nation of Israel, they go up the first time to to, to the promised land, and and uh, uh, the the end result is is that they find that um, this isn't exactly what they were thinking it was going to be. They found giants in the land and they got scared. Well, you know, he, he, here's the Lord uh, says, okay, you guys aren't going in. The next generation goes in and he goes and he reminds this next generation, Deuteronomy chapter 10. And uh, here he is in, uh, in, in verse 12 and it says, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep his commandments, uh, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Now, now, now did you catch that? He said that the keeping of the commandments of God is for your good. It's for your good. Why is that so hard for us to grasp? Why is that so hard for us to sit down and realize, you know what, why would I want to make my life ten times harder than it already is? I mean, I already know that I'm going to have trials and troubles and afflictions. Why in the world would I want to sit there and try to make it worse? If I just keep God's commandments, look, if I just do it the way God tells me to do it, Guess what happens? It works out good, doesn't it? It works out good. You know, people go over there and they claim that verse, saying, well, all things work out good for them that love God. Yeah, but again, you know, there's some predication on that. If you're going out there and you're living like the devil... What does it say? The way of the transgressor is what? Hard. Hard. Not easy. Not comfortable. Hard. 
Life is already hard. Why would I want to add any more hardness to it? Well, here we find very clearly that the Lord says, look, I know what's best for you. I know what's good for you. I know what you need to do in this short span of life that you have, this small, brief little life that is a vapor that vanisheth away. He says, I know what's best for you to do in that time period. And this is where, where, where Solomon's come down to this saying, ah, we got to accept that truth. We have to believe it. We have to believe that. Because again, you go back over there and he asks that question in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 6. And he says, for who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? No person, no person knows what's an eternity. Now look, we have some glimpses in scripture. But there's really... Not a lot mentioned about it. And I think there's a reason why. I, I don't even think we can even begin to fathom that. It, one time me and Bob we were sitting there talking about time and relativity and all sorts of stuff and drawing these weird little graphs downstairs on the, you know, and kind of this, you know, these, these, these discussions about how things work. And, and, and again, Again, we're trying to, to, to talk about time as if we know exactly what time is. You realize time is not constant? That just kind of shoots everything to shreds once you realize that. Time itself is not constant. Well, how do we know that? Well, God stopped time a couple of places. And to him, time is non-existent. He can just hit pause. And we would never even know. And when we look at what God does here, he says, look, do you know what's going to be after? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? He said, and I want us to think about this passage as we close with this chapter. Here he's asking this question, do we know what's going to be after us under the sun? Do Look, if we live our life fearing God and keeping his commandments and we do what the Lord wants us to do that's good in this life, do we understand the impact that's going to have in other areas? I don't think we do. I don't think we do. How many of you sometimes have little devotionals that you read? Uh, you know, every single day, um, they pop up. Uh, I, I've got a couple. I, I, I like Charles Spurgeon and I like his morning and evening ones. Those ones are really good. He's got another one, Faith's Checkbook, that's good. I like Oswald Chambers. If you can find one of the original ones, not these rewrites that exist out there. I'm talking the original, original stuff. Um, uh, and, and, it, and it's, it's very convicting. I think, you know, they take it when they, they, they abridge it and they water it down that they take a lot of the, the power out of it, in my opinion. Um, but, but I like those type of devotions. I like those. Ones. You realize that those guys have been dead for a while now. Do you realize that people are still reading and publishing Spurgeon's works today and Oswald Chambers? This morning we sang a hymn by Fanny Crosby. By Fanny Crosby. She's long since passed away and is in heaven. We're still singing those hymns, giving glory, honor, and praise to our Savior. Do we, and look, when we ask that first question and we say, okay, who knoweth what is good for man in this life? Well, if I trust the Lord that that's what good, then how do I know how that's going to impact what happens afterwards? You know what the wise man does? The wise man looks at his life and says, I'm going to do what is good now so that there will be an impact that the Lord will use later on. I'm going to live for him right now and do his commandments and keep his commandments 
Because that may have an, an impact later on in life. I, I'm, I'm still glad, I'm so glad that Charles Spurgeon did what the Lord asked him to do. Still has an impact on me today. I'm so glad that there are people in this life that, 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 that took time to tell me how I needed a Savior in Jesus Christ. And the impact that it has today. And I can only pray that as long as I do what God wants me to do, and I just simply follow his commandments, who knows what's going to happen afterwards, that the glory will be given to the Savior, glory given to God in Jesus Christ. Not in areas that I may not even understand. Impacts later on that we've had in a person's life. What do we know is going to happen afterwards? This is where that trust really comes in. And we find a lot of this as we move into chapter 7. Chapter 7 really starts picking up some steam. And he starts dispelling some of these things of vanity and what to do as far as get ridding, of, yeah, ridding them out of our lives and, and really doing what the Lord asks us and, and, and wants us to do. There's some great passages in chapter 7, and I'm looking forward to getting to that. But again, just keep this in mind as we continue to progress. Keep thinking about these questions. Who knows what's best for my life? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? The answer is the Lord. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for all that you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that we would take these things, we would hide them in our heart, Lord, that we would seek to please you and honor you, that, Lord, we would fear you and do and keep those commandments that you've set before us. Lord, again, I just pray that we would trust you to know what is best in our life and that we would follow after it. Again, Lord, I just pray you take us home safely tonight. And, Lord, may we be a witness and an example of you throughout this week, Lord, to tell somebody in the need, that needs a Savior, that needs you. And, Lord, may we be an encouragement to the brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ask and pray all of these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.